And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest, Kelly Barnhill on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay! Here we are! And, 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 and Kelly has a new book out within days of our, our talking. Uh, I mm-hmm. guess it just appeared last week, The Crane... Yeah, on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, okay. Um, and it's, it's called The Crane Husband, and I think it's terrific. Um, and as you probably know, I thought your novel from last year was one of the most surprising, wonderful things I read that year, too. Uh, I really appreciate you saying that, Gary. That's really kind. Thank well, you. It's, it, it, it would be kind if I didn't absolutely mean it, because <laughs> it, was, I had, it, was, it was a novel I had no idea what to expect with. But there was a similar thing going on with it. Uh, with the crane husband, and that is there's a central absurd image uh, which could either just trail off into whimsy or could Mm -hmm. lead back into something completely unexpected. So what I didn't expect in uh, When Women Became Dragons was this wonderful kind of alt-historical, very contemporary story that dealt with the mistreatment of bright women students, the idea when, when the one of the things, I don't know if you knew this at the time or, or if you were ahead of it, but they're censoring books that have dragons in them. I mean, yeah. basically, you had DeSantis in that novel a year and a half ago. I mean, honestly, it just, um, uh, this has happened to me before. And, and I think this has happened to a lot of people who write um, uh, imaginative fiction uh, reality expensive fiction, uh, speculative fiction, all these, all these different sort of like, um, uh, ways in which SFF writers describe their work to make themselves sound more fancy. Um, uh, but I do think that this does happen because we are, because the, the thing about, the thing about fantasy and science fiction is that, you know, we are always, you know, taking the world that we are living in and, um, uh, and looking back at it through this strange mirror. Right. Um, and, um, and, and being able to sort of, you know, reflect back on ourselves and, 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 and to be able to show these, these pull out these little details that maybe people didn't notice or, or see or, or understand was important. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and unfortunately, because we do this and because we do this work and this kind of thinking about the world, it means that it, it, it will seem to other people like sort of like being prescient or like, you know, like, how did you know this was going to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, and actually it's just like, no, I, I just, these things were already happening. They, it's just that people weren't paying attention to it. And now it's in the news in a bigger way, but, um, but it was coming up in that, in that story when I wrote it three years ago, because part of, being part of writing fiction is is being able to sort of like have have no filter, right? Have no filter, have no sort of blockade between ourselves and the world, and being extremely sensitive to things, and be and all not only to like the world, but also to like the nuances of the human heart and all of these other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is this sort of like act of extreme empathy. Uh, so we're in this like, you know, extreme empathy with our with our characters, but we're also in extreme empathy with the world itself, right? And so and so it's just like, no, it, these things were already happening. I just wasn't in a place where I could feel it really deeply, right? 
And, um, and, and unfortunately, and then now they turn into big stuff and now we have to actually contend with it. I don't but, know. But uh, part of what fascinated me about that element of it was that that was clearly a kind of science fictional thinking. You're talking, yeah. and, and it's interesting in The Crane Husband, which is a classic kind of fantasy narrative, it's got this corporate farming dystopian. So there's a science fiction element in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is that like, okay, so that, that, that is often sort of, you know, uh, so people use that word dystopia to, yeah. um, to talk, about, to talk about that. And I'm not sure if I agree with it. I mean, it certainly is sort of near future. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, it is, it does seem to me to be where farming is heading, right? You know, um, I mean, already is there. You know, we all we already oh, yeah, have. It is. Yeah, I mean, we are we already have these things like the, um, uh, um, uh, you know, it's um, uh, uh, I think it's something like forty percent um, of um, uh, maybe it's even it's higher than that. Anyway, in in American farmland is largely uh, becoming owned by um, uh, by conglomerates like the largest yeah. farm. Um, farm owner right now in America is Bill Gates, right? Really? Uh, oh, yeah. He's been buying up farmland. Yeah. Well, we had a, uh, a, a gubernatorial election here in Illinois last year, and one of the candidates, uh, the con- very conservative candidate, was running on, he's a small farmer from Southern Illinois. And it didn't come <laughs> out until you looked into it that he owns 80,000 acres through a corporation which he runs. Right, right, right. Yeah. So technically, yeah. he's a Southern <laughs> Illinois farmer, but... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like the, um, uh, this idea of the importance of drones and uh, drone-operated um, harvesters and, yep. and plows and all that stuff. Like um, uh, uh, farming is becoming. Well, I mean, what it like the thing that I imagined in um, uh, in my book is um, really not so far off from some from where we are right now. So, are we in a dystopia right now? I mean, I don't know. Uh, the wood, well, the I woods mean, overused. <laughs> How does an awareness of trends in industrialized farming end up connecting with a 15-year-old girl having to cope with being the sole point of stability in her own world and having to, you know, be the grown-up in her, in her life when this extra chaotic uh, thing happens? It's a really great question. Um, there's no particularly good answer for that. Uh, I will say... I mean, there are writers who like think through everything and plan everything and sort of have this sense of like what their novels are going to do beat by beat. And they they have a really clear notion of what it is that they're trying to say. And I am not one of those writers at all. And I admire them. I admire people who who are who are extremely cerebral in their approach. For me, my approach to writing has always been in kind of dreams, signs, and wonders, you know? And, and and a lot of it is like me trying to figure out what it is that my brain is trying to tell me. Um, or maybe what it is that the story itself is trying to tell me. I love this idea. Madeline Langle um, wrote this wonderful book of essays called Walking on Water that was essentially a book of, of lectures sort of put together. And um, uh, it's not for everybody. It's deeply Christian, as she was yeah. herself, deeply 
Christian. And, um, I, and, um, but, but for me, it was definitely speaking my language. And, and, uh, and she talks about this idea of obedience, uh, obedience to the, to the story. Um, and, um, and, and, and setting your ego aside and setting what it is that you want to say and just being, and just being attentive mm-hmm. to the story. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, um, but I do. I am sort of working on this grand unified theory of of storytelling that is like not worked out at all right now. But I I have this idea of storytelling as being this collaboration uh, between the back brain and the front brain, right? Uh, the front brain is our prefrontal cortex that like is language and logic and things fitting together and ideas that are, you know, sort of like have um, several paragraphs that are able to um, support it and all of our supporting documents. All of that is in our prefrontal cortex. Our back brain uh, is our emotional brain. It is, um, uh, it, is the, it is the part of our brain that worries. It is the part of our brain that wonders. It is the part of our brain that thinks in metaphor and in image, right? Um, and we don't have language back here. Language lives here, right? We don't really have pictures up here. Pictures live back here, right? This is also where our emotions live. And, um, and so I do think that, um, uh, that these little itchy thoughts, these things that like we can't let go, these things that like this, like notions that kind of get stuck in our crop. Right. Um, and that we kind of turn them around and around and around here in our front brain. Um, that the that sometimes it's our back brain that like works in emotion, image, metaphor, um, uh, that starts to sort of like bringing these ideas, you know, like they filter back and then they filter mm-hmm. forward. You don't always understand that that's what's going on. Right. So, for example, when I wrote um, um, A Girl Who Drank the Moon, um, I, I I was also, again, was supposed to be writing a totally different book, mm-hmm. which I was. <laughs> and but I had this this thought, this like this sticky, like just itchy little thought, like the like the piece of sand in a in, in, at the center of an oyster. Right. Just like you just thought, like it's an irritation. Right. And because and it was about this idea that um, uh, how we can take a fact and through the magic of storytelling, render that fact false. Right. Um, And and really, this was sort of in the in the aftermath of like Hurricane Katrina and how like all of journalism had to like completely relook at itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because because they just got so many things totally wrong. Um, and and, you know, there was this, you know, uh, element of bias and racism and all of these other things that like allowed people to like take facts that were true and put and 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 render them false uh, based on the storytelling of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so I knew that I wanted to write a book about that, that like that in which there would be a story that people would that that would be like told again and again that would have elements like facts in them that the that the kid reader would be able to see would be true 
right? But but would be able to understand that like, but the way that they're telling it is giving us the wrong impression. I knew that I wanted to do that. I just didn't know what. And so like, it was just this like itchy thought, right? At the front of my brain. And then one day I went for a run and like had this like sudden image of a swamp monster with four arms and, uh, uh, you know, independently moving eyes and like, you know, this long tail that wrapped around itself and, and was, you know, playing the flute. So like you do. And like, and like that, I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I better write it down. Like it sort of was reciting a, a poem in my, in my imagination. I ran home, I wrote the poem down. And that is what sort of led me to, and I didn't realize for a long time that like, oh, these images ha- are, are, this part of my brain is trying to communicate with this front question, right? So yeah. similarly, um, I was, I started this story. I was not planning on writing a story and I was driving through, um, rural America, um, uh, in the middle of the pandemic in, in RV. Um, uh, we were trying to take my, my, my oldest kid to, um, uh, to college and we were going to visit family on the East coast. And so we, but we, to get there safely, we bought an old RV from a farmer couple in Southern Minnesota. And, um, and we are driving through the Midwest and, and, you know, when you're driving through the Midwest, you, especially if you're on smaller roads, um, because a lot of times we would like stay on, there's a lot of like, sometimes uh, farms will allow people to stay um, with their RVs on their farms. And um, it's like a whole thing. Um, And so we stayed in these little farms and, but you drive past, a lot of abandoned farmhouses and mm. um, uh, and towns that are sort of um, uh, shrinking uh, and um, uh, farms that, you know, once upon a time were a family farm and now are part of this giant conglomerate. Right. Um, and and so, you know, I, I started to um, and I, and as I was thinking about that, I was also thinking about like where we were as a country, sort of like in the, first of all in the throes of this you know terrifying illness, but also with this administration that was acting from my point of view as um, an abuser, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I have um, uh, I used to work in a, um, a shelter with um, uh, uh, for victims of de- domestic violence. Um, uh, I have experienced relationship violence in my past as well, um, sort of in my 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 early youth, and um, and and so I was I was sort of thinking about like how these things started to intersect, and I and I knew that they did. I knew that they did in a way that like I wasn't seeing. Um, and then we drove by this like collapsing farmhouse and there's a crane standing on top of it, kind of looking like an asshole. And I don't know why <laughs> like, it was an asshole, but I did though. And so I, I, I opened up my computer in this like jiggly rickety RV and I wrote the crane walked in like he owned the place. And then it just sort of, Pour it out from there. Okay, let's 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 take your theory of 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 storytelling and fiction because that's fascinating with the forebrain yeah. and the hindbrain. And take I'd like to because the first thing I thought of is to taking that back to some of your characters, both in um, when women were dragons and the crane husband has a really smart 
uh, mid-teenage uh, girl mm-hmm. as the narrator, who is at that mm-hmm. stage where she is learning to be competent. She has to learn to be competent because she's running everything, but she's still young enough that the fantasy part of her brain still stimulates yeah. her. She understands that. Both of these characters mm-hmm. suffer at the abuse of authority, which you were talking yeah. about, principals, teachers, social workers, and so forth and so on. So are these characters, my first thought was, uh, when you've got a, a, a 15-year-old narrator, uh, why isn't that a, a, a young adult story? And that becomes really clear not too far into the current husband. But still, you're dealing with a character who is at that stage when she's yeah. dealing with all these parts of the brain that you're talking about and yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. learn how to bring them together. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great question. So I have a theory about that, too. Uh, and not everybody agrees with me, but that's okay. Um, uh, so, for example, um, a, a friend of mine, Andrew Carr, who is uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, he's at yeah, Frank Dutton uh, is where he is now, but he used to be at Carol Rota for a million years. And, um, and so he has this theory about uh, young adult literature, that young adult liter- literature is about teenagers. It isn't necessarily for teenagers, right? Um, and so in that, in, that, then in that case, both of those books would be considered uh, YA from his purview. I actually disagree with him. Um, for me, the difference between middle grade, young adult, and adult fiction has to do with the directionality of the piece, the view of the piece. Which direction is it looking? So, for example, um, a, a middle grade book, the view is outward. Because kids at that age, you know, like fifth grade, you know, mm. fourth grade, fifth grade, um, a little bit of sixth grade, you know, sometimes even third graders, they are trying to understand the whole world, right? Um, uh, they are trying to understand how the world works and what their place in it is, right? And so if you ask an 11 year old, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're going to tell you 57 things and nine of them don't exist, mm-hmm. right? And um, and so these books, they're very fun to write. Um, uh, they are dealing with big questions. What is love? What is friendship? What does justice mean? How does the world work? Why is there gravity? And like, how do you pee in space? All of these things, right, um, are like, big burning questions, right? They are outside of themselves, you know? The, um, I, I, again, like, what is the whole world and where do I fit in, right? So that's middle grade fiction. Young adult fiction, uh, the view is inward, right? Who am I and do I matter? Right. I have never been a person who has done X, Y, or Z. And now I am a person who has done X, Y, and Z, and then more besides. And now I am that person forever. And of course, we as adults, mm-hmm. we know that that's not true. But boy, does that feel true when you're 15. You know, if you ask a 15 year old, what do you want to be when you grow up? They will say, why are you making aggressive eye contact with me? And can I please go to my room. And I'm saying that with all of the love in my heart, I have this, I still have one teenager left uh, who is, and, and I, my house is often filled with teenagers. I love teenagers to pieces, right? Um, for adult fiction, the view is backward. How did we get here? 
How did we get here? right? We're always looking backwards. We're looking backwards at our lives. Um, we're trying to make sense of where we've been so that we can start to move forward again, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and so for me, both of those books, um, uh, that, would, that would classify both of them as adult books for that reason, even though it is a child narrator, um, uh, because both of them, A, are uh, being told from the point of view of somebody who has already left this experience, right? Um, uh, in both cases. And of course, in, in When Women Were Dragons, Alex tells us right away that she's very old now, right? Mm. Uh, and, um, and so she has, you know, the, the benefit of not just some time, but quite a bit of time. Um, when, um, in, in the case of, um, the crane husband, we don't really know how old she is. Uh, we don't know how much time mm -hmm. has passed. We just know that some time has passed. So again, she does have that, that's that, that feeling of distance. So, uh, we are still looking backwards. She's not asking, who am I? We barely, like, she barely knows herself really. Um, uh, what, what she is trying to do is to try to make sense of this moment when her family falls apart. One of the things so. I thought was fascinating about When Women Were Dragons was what you say, the subtitle is, harks back to these 17th, 18th century fictional biographies like Maul yeah. Flanders and Henry Esmond and so forth and so on. So that it is a fictional life looked back on. And, and that tone is very much consistent throughout that. I think you're right. The, the crane husband is a little bit more mysterious. Yeah, 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 yeah. and that was somewhat by design um, uh, because the um, uh, because it still needed to feel like a fairy tale, right? In a fairy tale where we rarely know the characters' names, um, uh, and people are you know you know the king or the brother or the you know or whatever the woodcutter um, and um, uh, uh, the pig, the pig herder, or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, and so so it was. It, it, but it was also uh, it was important too for me um, uh, because it um, uh, because it's uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's uncomfortable because uh, it just it puts it it creates that sort of um, that little bit of instability. Um, and, um, and, and which was important for the reader to feel because she's in this place of instability, right? And so it puts you in that place of, you know, really, um, uh, uh, unpleasant empathy. Uh, not that, not that I like want to cause people unpleasantness, but I kind of do. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of curious because if I recall the story of the origins of when women were dragons correctly, they're not very different from the origins of the crane husband in terms of physical actuality. I mean, you, yeah. you know, I recall the story of you, you know, you being on the road with your daughter, I think going to college or somewhere. And yeah. I'm curious, I mean, does motion and change of scene uh, physically in your, in your day-to-day -day life impact your storytelling? That's a really great question, Jonathan. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the, um, I, so, uh, as we discussed earlier, I'm in recovery for a brain injury. And, um, and so one of the things that I've always done in my, in my writing and in my creative life, uh, I can't do right now because I don't have the memory capacity right now. 
Uh, but for a long time, I um, one of my sort of daily practice, I had a lot of different kinds of daily practices and a lot of different kinds of writing that never made it into you know, any project that I was doing, but it was mostly um, working different kinds of muscles, like allowing my imagination and my brain to sort of like play uh, with different things. But one of the things I used to do uh, was I would write while I was running. And um, so I'd go for a run on some, like we have a lot of like really pretty parks and trails and stuff uh, in Minneapolis. It's a very, Minneapolis is a very parky kind of a city. And, uh, and so, um, so I'd be out for a run and as I was running, I would, I, I would, I would find a sentence that pleased me and I would kind of turn it around in my head for a little bit, um, until it just it's until it landed, right. Sometimes I would say it out loud, but mostly I would just sort of like, just try to hear it in my ear. I I'm a big believer in just sort of the physicality of language, the sort of like sensoriousness of language. And, um, and so once, once the sentence sort of felt right, I would sort of go, I would sort of go through it again and again until I could sort of really hold it in my memory. And then I would just add another sentence onto it. Um, I, and, and then I would loop back and say the, um, the two together and then add a third sentence and then loop back and say the three. And then sort of like adding sentence after sentence, kind of like beads on a string. Uh, and, and I could, and then, and just like, and I would just go through it over and over. Okay. Add one more sentence. Now I've got the whole thing again. Okay. Add one more sentence. Okay. Now I've got the whole thing again. And I would just sort of like go on like that. Um, it was this very sort of like rhythmic kind of meditative thing that I could do to sort of like continue to do the miles, you know, to keep the demons at bay. And uh, why do we run? I don't know. Uh, and, uh, um, and so, and, and then I would come home and I would write it down. Um, and, uh, and I could usually hold, you know, two to three pages of text in my head like that. Um, and most of the time I would just throw that away. Um, I, that was, that wouldn't be something that I would keep unless maybe there was like a sentence that I liked, or I would realize that there would be an image or a paragraph that that seemed pertinent to whatever it was that I was working on. I would usually have like, my novels would kind of live in boxes, you know, so I'd like throw it in the box and, or it was just nonsense and I would throw it away and that was fine. That was, it, it, there was no pressure on it. It could just sort of like be what it was going to be. And then I, it could like go off into the ether. That was also fine. Uh, but I can't hold that in my head right now. Um, uh, I'm hoping that my dedication to fish oil is really going to help. We'll see. <laughs> It'll probably be. That I'm doing. <laughs> Here's another question about uh, about the. There's a famous folktale called the Crane Wife, obviously. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, I just finished reading a, a very good collection of stories by another author who is a scholar and fairy tale writer. Some of her stories in that collection don't. They allude to a fairy tale without even telling you what it is. Uh, she'll talk mm. about the goose girl and you you either recognize it or you don't did you yeah, expect yeah. your readers of the crane husband i mean to, to know about the crane wife even though I, I know the narrator recalls her father telling her the original story at some point yeah but yeah i mean so the thing is that no they didn't and in fact like the I mean, I I do somewhat um, uh, bristle at you know when 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 my when this book is sort of referred to as a, as a retelling. Yeah, it's, not. it's not. 
It's definitely not. And um, but um, but it is like an echo, you know. As I remember, um, uh, I, I, I. I'm I'm certain that you two probably share my great love for Terry Pratchett. Um, long, long may long may his memory reign. Um, I, he's extremely beloved to me. He's extremely beloved to my entire household, and because I raised my children right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but there's this. I I remember. I I believe it was Witches Abroad um, when. Uh, you know, he always starts his books with this little conceit, you know, this like little sort of like, like um, cheeky philosophical knot um, that like slowly sort of finds its way unraveling throughout the book. I'm like, God, mm. how did yeah. he do it? <laughs> well, anyway, but at the beginning of that book, he he starts to talk about like how like how fairy tale stories will replicate. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and that and that people will find themselves sort of like acting in these sort of like archetypical roles without even thinking about it. You know, like if you, you know, like there's just there's just no helping it. If you are the pig keeper, you're just going to be king. Like just accept it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was almost like stories as prions. Right, mm-hmm. that um, uh, they kind of like um, sift around, and and then they just make more of themselves um, uh, uh, without people even realizing it. So in some ways, like it is, it the uh, the, the story of the crane wife is more is more like a prion within the story. But I don't think it's actually necessary to know. I mean, I think that the the, the part that is necessary is just the little bit that the that the father tells tells them. Like hopefully it will lead people to the source text and i think that's wonderful the more that people read fairy tales the better off we all are i think mm-hmm. um and um uh, in fact maybe we should just take a pause and just all read some four fairy tales right now i don't know um <laughs> it's always a good idea as far as i can tell but um uh but i do think that it is not necessary to know the story in order to understand um, uh, what it is that this book is actually dealing with, which is, you know, generational abuse and like, and the, and the cost of survival, it, right? It, it is. And, but the, but yeah. let, let me, let me ask a, a point. Another thing, which is, which I think is both a version of it is in the original and a very different version of it is yours. And that is the mysterious nature of artistic creation, the thing yeah. that happens behind the curtain, the thing that we can't watch. And if we, if we look at it, it stops. It evaporates. Yeah. We can't have it anymore. And yeah. it, it's, it's much darker and actually more violent in your version than in the original. Yeah. But the original still has that idea, don't watch me while I'm doing this. Right. Honestly, the, I mean, can you imagine having people watch you while you're trying to write? It would never work. <laughs> Harlan Ellison wrote stories in the storefronts of Windows, but he only did it twice and they weren't really very good stories. Well, see, they. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like one of the um, uh, I I used to actually have nightmares of like being on deadline, trying to write stuff, and um, and having people stand behind me and read as I was writing. Like, I don't know where that dream came from, but I had it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I do think 
think that, um, uh, I mean, another thing that sort of comes up is also just um, uh, the cost of creation and, mm. um, uh, and, and that there is, um, in, in a lot of ways, you know, the mother isn't wrong when um, uh, she starts to become uncomfortable with this idea of, of selling her art, mm -hmm. right? This one piece of, of, of art that, it, that matters to her so much uh, for reasons that she can't articulate, she can't talk about, and also that's hurting her. It's clearly hurting her, you know? And yet um, uh, that idea of like, of, of taking this thing that matters so much to her and ascribing um, a, a cost to it, like also just feels yucky to her mm -hmm. in ways that is, um, that is completely baffling to our, our poor um, uh, uh, narrator who just wants to like get some milk. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe some bread that isn't stale. I mean, how about that too? Like she does, she, and, and of course her life has, has forced her to be, so practical um uh and um and largely because mom has you know abdicated her responsibility well yeah um, but even before the crane husband shows up the mother is yeah. described as as often living inside her own head yeah that she's and and and, and her her husband really did indulge that and, and probably loved that about her you know mm -hmm. that her feet barely touched the ground mm -hmm. that he, he he loved that she was this person that created these wonderful wonderful things um and um and and had built it and like had they had clearly had this life where this was all made possible and yeah. it couldn't continue i mean eventually our bodies break down and like death comes for us all so there we go how much of this is is the nightmare of the creative person's life? You know, hmm. the idea that, you know, if you're a creative person somewhere inside yourself, you're aware that there has to be a price paid by those around you while you yeah. devote yourself to this thing that you're doing, which is by its nature almost always solitary or exclusive for the period of time you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, God. Jonathan, this is the first time I've really thought about that. But um, uh, but as soon as you said it, I just felt this like this pit in my stomach <laughs> <laughs> and this tremendous sense of guilt for what I've done to my children. Oh heavens! I mean, yeah, I do think that that's true, and I think that um, uh, that that yeah, there there is this cost, you know, that um, that even like. I mean, my work has allowed me to um, to be flexible, you know, and, mm -hmm. and really I think we all work a lot out of this, you know, not to like put any kind of like magical like woo around art, you know. Um, I used to be a teacher and would come home completely exhausted. Like my family couldn't be there sure. for that either. Right. You know, and so, um, uh, uh, you know, my sister's a doctor like like that also. Take, like, I think that work just takes a lot out of us anyway, no matter what it mm -hmm. is. Um, sure. And and I do think that um, uh, that there is like a particular challenge with mothers um, uh, just because of um, uh, these cultural expectations that are placed on us. And 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 also that. This um, uh, that 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 the place that and for for people who write books and people who are involved in art, the place that we 
parent from is the same place where art comes from, right? You know, it is that mm -hmm. same sort of like, like there's, there's just nothing left. Like there's no me anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, this total like opening up and like um, uh, pouring out and that's, it's not super sustainable. It's not super sustainable for either thing. Right. Um, and, um, and so, which is how, why everybody gets so worn out. So I do think that there, um, uh, uh, that, you know, the idea of the cost of art, the idea of, um, uh, that, um, uh, these, like these small choices that we make, uh, between, um, uh, the, the creation of something new and the sustaining of these little lives that like yeah. depend on us. There was a, um, they can't always be at the same time, mm -hmm. right? They can't always be simultaneously. Like sometimes you have to sort of like, there is give and take. And if you've got somebody that's not great at balancing that, then that can get really um, unpleasant really fast. I haven't, mm -hmm. I haven't read it yet, but um, last year, Julie Phillips, who had written that wonderful biography of James Tiptree, um, her, her newest book is, called The Baby on the Fire Escape, and it's literally a study of motherhood and, and fiction writers. And she talks about Le Guin and um, I think Angela Carter and maybe Susan Sontag. The, the title comes from the fact that one of these people, in order to get their writing done, were living in an apartment in New York and they'd put the baby out on the fire escape so they couldn't be bothered by, uh, by, by the baby uh, howling for, for food or whatever it was. And... Uh, I remember talking to Julie about that and believe and it's, it seems to be a common issue because I once had a long, I, it just sounds like name dropping and I'm sorry, but I had a long conversation with Doris Lessing who felt horribly guilty about her mm -hmm. kids. And yeah. I gather from, from what Julie is saying in, in her book uh, that that is, is a fairly common issue. That's, I mean, I, I wrote down the, the title of that book. I'm going to buy it immediately. Uh, but no, for sure. I mean, so after my third child was born, um, I mean, that really was, it, it became like more and more pressing because I didn't really write at all in my early twenties. You know, I did, I did other things. I, I kind of thought, well, I, I wrote all the time in college and then I graduated and then like, I had nothing more to say. I thought, oh, maybe I'm not a writer. And so I just did other stuff. I fell in love. I became a park ranger. I got, you know, um, a trained in wildland firefighting. I was a bartender in Florida, like all kinds of different stuff that I did during that time. Uh, and then I started like having babies like crazy. And, and so by the time I was 30, I had three kids in a minivan. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and, but that was when like suddenly this, like this, this urge to make stuff sort of returned to me. And then, so, but I had these three little kids. It was hard to like figure out how I was going to do that. And, um, and so I was like, you know, for a while I, I would just have my computer open all the time and I would like write a sentence and then do stuff and then write a sentence. But I couldn't really do that because it meant that I was never in one place, mm -hmm. you know, I, I couldn't be present because so much of the, of writing fiction is that, is that attentiveness, you know, that, you know, being like fully in that one moment and, and grounding our narrative voice so that we can ground the reader into this one particular moment. 
right? And um, and so that requires that sort of like being able to like let everything else fall away so that we can just be right here. Well, you can't do that when you've got like a toddler that is like ready to climb out the window and an infant that is that needs a diaper change and a five-year-old who's like wants to know everything that there is to know about bees or whatever. (laughs) And so um, uh, I and so I realized that that couldn't be the case. And so then I started waking up at four in the morning uh, and I would write until six. And then I would get my oldest up for uh, to wake her up uh, for kindergarten, and um, and uh, and so and and then that would be the only writing that I would do in the day. But then eventually the infant was like, "Oh, mom's up at four. Well, I guess we're all up at four. So <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> and really, the thing that was like that that really made a huge difference, frankly, was money. Um, yeah. I applied for an artist grant. And um, I applied for an artist grant and then told them that I wanted to spend it on childcare and I didn't get it. And then I applied the next year and said that I wanted to buy a computer so that I could write the great American novel. And I did get it. I did not buy the computer. (laughs) (laughs) I used it on buying chat, like to have like a couple hours. I was going to do all kinds. I wrote this whole thing. I didn't do any of those things. I just bought childcare uh, so that I could have um, uh, two days a week that I didn't have the children for three hours. And that is what did it for me, actually, um, uh, was to have that kind of time. Uh, and so I do think that like, yeah, I mean, you can't, it's it's too hard to do both things at the same time. I gather one of the things uh, I'm thinking of biographies of, and there was a, another biography of Shirley Jackson and one of her ways of de- dealing with it was to write stories about her family. She wrote these yeah. comic essays, like Raising Demons mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. Uh, and mm-hmm. I made a lot of money selling things to ladies' magazines back in the 40s yeah. and 50s. Um, but I can't remember when she found time to write. But well, of course, she tended to write mostly short fiction. But again, that issue comes up again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I guess you're right. You have to learn to manipulate the system and tell them, it's not kids, it's just a computer, and therefore you're okay. Right, I know, so dumb. And in this case, I mean, what the what um, uh, what she had was a nine-year-old that she put in charge, and that was not fair, right? You know, yeah. it, was not, it was not fair to said nine-year-old, and it was, you know, continued to not be fair as that, as that situation continued. So I, I do think that, like, um, uh, like, on one hand, you know, the, there is this sort of like, I mean, one thing that artists are really good at is making do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, these are the materials I have. Um, uh, I'm going to paint. I, I only have blue paint for this painting, so I'm going to make this work. I only, I, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm composing on this instrument that's missing a string. So guess what? This is going, to, we're going to like do this on four strings. The, um, uh, I, I, um, or whatever it is, right? Um, I, I only have 14 lines for the sonnet. So let me know. All of these ways in which art gets constrained becomes its own kind of beauty, right? Yeah. And 
Um, and so, and on one hand, that's like one of the cool things about art, like how it's, um, uh, uh, it, it's always making do with what is present and what is available and, um, uh, and trying to make something beautiful or true or thoughtful or um, uh, something that, that bends the world a little bit. You know, and um, and and unfortunately, I do think that like we can get overly used to that, right? Mm. Um, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, there um, there have been some things that I've had to apologize for in my. Life. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, you know, how did you originally envision the figure of the crane husband? That's a really good question. Um, uh, I mean, the thing is that, like, I, I didn't super know where this was taking me when I first began. Um, uh, I, I was just kind of like trying to follow where it led. Um, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't totally sure. Um, like, I like just, I mean, I was in the same place as her. Like, I didn't know what it wanted. Um, I just knew it was dangerous, you know. The, the, reason, um, the reason I ask and, is that um, when he first shows up, and I don't—I I was trying to look up the actual quotation, which I think I had marked. He first shows up, and he's like a cartoon stork, practically. He's got the hat. I, I, I envisioned him as something off of a Hallmark birth card or something, with a you know mm -hmm. a, a, a messenger cap and a cigar out of one beak. He almost looks like a cartoon figure. Um, yeah, and then it gets really dark fairly quickly after that. But at first, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. almost this comical appearance. Yeah, 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 and the shoes, you know, the um, uh, uh, yes, his feet come, his claws coming out of the shoes. Yeah, and and the thing is that like the thing about cranes is they do look kind of ridiculous. Like, um, so have you ever have you ever gone to see the migration of the sand cranes uh, coming up through Nebraska? It's incredible. Like you should go. Um, so if you go over to Platt, um, Nebraska, at you know whatever time of year it is, I forget. Um, uh, so the sand cranes have this huge area that they live in, sort of like the southern part of the um, uh, of the of the continent. And then they they when they are 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 migrating north and south and then in the northern part of the continent also a huge area but they all funnel through this one place over at the Platte River uh, for reasons that I don't really understand some like bird scientists could tell you uh, but they all show up and it's literally millions of birds um, it is it is so many birds you just you can't even believe it and the sky is just filled with these like mobs there'll be a huge mob of like thousands of birds over here and of course it's nebraska it's incredibly flat you can just see miles and then and then you go over here there's another mob of birds in the sky there'll be entire mobs of birds all through like like occupying entire cornfields like you just can't even believe it um it sounds like I'm exaggerating and I'm actually like underselling it right now. Actually, I have a friend from Nebraska who was a professional nature photographer. So I've seen yeah. pictures. I've never seen uh, the thing, but I've seen. And the sound they make, they're incredibly loud. Well, anyway, one time we were there seeing it 
And um, I don't know what had happened, but I saw one crane sort of like off on her own. And like, you know, and after a little while, like, you know, and I remember wondering like why she wasn't with the rest of the group. And after a while, like this group of other cranes like came over to where, where it was. Like, I can't tell the difference between a male and female, but like they kind of surrounded her and then they pecked her to death. Oh. Like, it was just like unbelievably violent. Like, just like out of nowhere attack, you know? And so, um, uh, and so the, so I've, I mean, I've never forgotten that. Um, mm. my, I was probably like, whatever, eighth grade when I saw that. And, um, and so, so the, like the, like the thing about, you know, I mean, birds are amazing because they're so beautiful. They're so delicate and they're dinosaurs, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, look at that lovely velociraptor. You know what I mean? I hope it doesn't eat my throat. And, um, <laughs> and, and there is this sort of like, you know, menace to them too, yeah. you know, yeah. Like ancient predator with these like beautiful delicate feathers, you know. And so, like I've always sort of like I've had this fascination with birds, but specifically with cranes. Um, and so it was like it it was it was intentional to sort of like have that sort of you know, it, not so much comic, but like so odd that it kind of is startling, you know. Um, because because I'm asking the reader to sort of like roll with a lot, right? Hmm. Um, uh, it's just it's just like, all right, guys, come on, keep up, you know. <laughs> and and so and 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 I do think that there is, um, uh, I you know, it's, it it takes it takes some confidence to be able to do that. Um, uh, just sort of like just sort of you know. Not and but also trust too, like you know, to be able to sort of like put a reader in that unsettled place and um and to insist that they need to like just keep up and just like yeah, I just need you to trust me and then trust that they will, right? Yeah. Um and um uh but but I do think that like it was important to sort of like have experience that sort of like that oddness first before that menace settled right. in, you know? Well, plus the fact that you have very nicely a dual perspective because there's a narrator's perspective, but there's her little brother who is more innocent and who doesn't quite catch the darkness yeah. as soon. People who like, I mean, that, I mean, this is the other thing that a human being can become acclimatized to all kinds of like, um, uh, uh, outrageous things, mm -hmm. right? Like this is why abuse happens. This is why it works, right? Because yeah. because people be can become inured to things, you know? And like, okay, well, okay, I've accepted this. Okay, now I'm just going to accept this too. And now I'm just also going to accept this, right? And I'm going to accept this too. And 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 we we have seen this with like, you know, how many lies are we going to accept from the news? How many lies are we going to accept from our leaders? Mm -hmm. How many lies am I going to accept from this person I'm sleeping with? Like how, how many lies are we going to be able to sort of like endure? Well, turns out a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out we will endure 
all kinds of like completely unacceptable things and accept all kinds of unacceptable things, right? And um, and so that's why where um, uh, where Michael becomes important and Michael's perspective. Because, oh, there's my dog, mm-hmm. everybody. Um, uh, uh, Michael's perspective becomes really important because um, uh, because because he is the one who like is is there to make his sister like become aware of um, yeah. of what she has become inured to right like wait a minute this is not okay you know um, and and I think that that's an important moment in the story because I think as a reader too. Um, I, uh, we have to like, we have to have these moments where like, where, um, uh, the expectation is, is subverted even just a little bit mm-hmm. in order for us to like be, you know, sort of like a little bit, um, have to take a step back. Right. So we're, um, because what we're invited to do is to inhabit the, you know, the, the eyes and body and mind and point of view of these, of these characters. But we, but, but we have this opportunity to sort of like get a, you know, um, uh, to sort of widen the lens a little bit. And so that's, that's, that's the, the role that, that Michael does play in the narrative for sure. Looking back, are you surprised that from the point of view of somebody in the outside world, this has been your most productive 15 months? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Uh, it, it is extremely weird. I mean, the um, uh, like on one hand, um, uh, these three books are interesting because they did overlap with one another. Um, uh, there would be these periods of time when I would like focus on one almost exclusively. And then I would have to like put it aside because I'd kind of burn myself out or like just, I kind of ran, ran out of gas. And then I would, you know, return to, you know, this other weird thing that I, you know, wrote this like spine of, or I, you know, like wrote a big chunk of, and now I realize that there's another chunk that has to go with it or whatever it was. And, um, but all of them, uh, all of them, I I finished the like the drafting of prior to my injury. The one thing that I had to do after my injury was the line edits for um, Queen Husband, and that almost killed me. I actually had to have my family help with me um, uh, because it was um, uh, things that are visually busy are are difficult for me, and um, and I get really dizzy. So I would have to like be on the floor with pillows. And then, and sometimes I would have to like, you know, make it really big and, and like pass it off and like have another person like read it out loud to me and be like, okay, no, it's that or whatever. Um, and, um, uh, and so like, it's weird having these things all out uh, and this, and this time when like, I don't know if I'm going to write again, you mm. know, and I don't, I don't know if I'm going to write again. I do yeah. feel that um, if Crane Husband is my last book, which we'll see, uh, but if it is, like, I, I, I'm okay with that, actually. Like, I feel really proud of it. Um, and, um, I, and, um, and so it, it, there is this, like, odd disconnect, but there always is with publishing. Because with publishing, like, no matter what, like, the thing when it comes out, it's a long time after when we wrote yes. it, you know. Um, uh, it, is not, it is not an industry for impatient people. No, know? no. Well, it's like, I mean, <laughs> even if you were to suddenly 
find an idea and a path today for mm-hmm. something else, it mm-hmm. will be two, three, four, five, six years, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were talking before we started that the crane husband itself goes back two or three years between us and the conversation about it goes back five or six yeah. years. Yeah, and yeah. that just seems to be how these things unwind. Yeah. Yeah, because we just never know. I mean, when Women or Dragons was originally going to be a short story for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Uh, for the um, Dragon Anthology. I am really proud of myself that I was able to write a different story for you. Um, <laughs> that was like that was a testament to like, because again, like it was this time when I thought that I was done writing. I mean, I thought that I was done writing before. So I was going to say, it sounds like a theme. Yeah, well, I mean, I've also like, I, I mean, looking back at it, it's always been like after a concussion, because as we've said, the, this is, well, there is um, a th- my yeah, third. There is kind of a metamorphosis theme running through your work. Like maybe there's like this sort of like re-scrambling that happens, and um, I don't know. Um, well, even uh, though it's unfair because you, 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 you mean a grand unified theory of fiction. Like what you need to do is get a big knock on your head, kind of like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Here's a completely hypothetical question, since I certainly hope that the Korean husband isn't your last book, but and I don't mm-hmm. want to even guess what the next one would be because obviously you can't. But no, exactly. look at the, there are three kinds of narrative things going on that are very distinct, that are very genre oriented. As we've already mentioned, the Crane Husband has a, a near future science fiction. You know, living helplessly on a farm, watching machines do your work for you. So, so that is we can call it dystopia or not, but it's clearly science fiction. There's another part yeah. of it which obviously is the kind of folk fantasy that goes uh, with the transformation. And then the whole setting mm-hmm. is this kind of somewhere between Willa Cather and Laura Ingalls Wilder, bleak plains in the Midwest kind of thing, which could mm-hmm. which could lead to a completely mainstream novel about about the Midwest. Um, yeah. So, what what sounds most appealing? Straight fantasy, straight science fiction, straight Midwestern mainstream, or do you just reject the idea of having to choose? Well, yeah. I mean, if I say something, I'll probably definitely not write that thing. So maybe we shouldn't choose anything. Um, uh, but I, I, I will say, um, uh, I, I am. Um, I mean, for me as as a reader, I'm I'm a very. Um, uh, um, uh, I I'm. I'm kind of all over the place as a reader. I like to read everything. Um, and, um, and, but, but what I always do love is um, this attention to language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if, you know, if you write me a pretty sentence, like I'm just, I'm in, I'm just, I'm going to be in. Uh, and so I think, you know, um, uh, I've been, you know, I've been in this, this, um, uh, this creative practice of just, you know, I, I write a pretty sentence and I do it on a note card because there's something very sort of uh, uh, small about a, a note card. It's very contained. Um, and, um, you know, writing a text is also easier than an email, like things that are, um, have like neat borders are, are easier on my head. Um, and I think that's, that's why I was reading so much Terry Pratchett actually in the the early months after my, uh, after my injury is because, 
the the trim size of those of those paperbacks is very narrow. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, reading like larger books, like a, like a hardcover, like I I get this sort of sense of vertigo as my eye has to. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, travel from the end of one line to the beginning. Um, uh, it's just, it is it is a thing that I am assured will probably get better unless it doesn't get better. So that's where I am right now. And, um, but, but I, um, uh, no matter what, I think that, um, I you know, I, it's just impossible to know. Of course. Um, uh, or maybe I'll just keep writing fairy tales. Um, maybe I'll just yeah. write fairy tales forever that I won't show to anybody. I'll just recycle them all. We'll see. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I don't think I've ever heard any writer talk so much about throwing away their own work. Oh, yeah. How important to you is that disposability, that not having to be committed to that piece of prose as being something eternal you're going to have to have, that you can just go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write 350 fairy tales, and then something may fall out of it one day. Yeah, it's extremely important to me. You know, it it feels like, you know, making, like, beautiful chalk drawings um, uh, out on the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. knowing that the rain will wash it away, that there is this sort of – or just, like – just storytelling out loud. Um, I mean, for me, as a kid, I was a delayed reader as a kid. Um, I, it, it, I, it, it took me longer than my siblings or my peers uh, uh, to have like reading cognitively click for me. Um, but I loved stories. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I love stories so much. I was a, I was a terrific memorizer as a kid um and i loved stories out loud yeah i would l- listen to things on the radio um i would i would um uh, when i was a little kid i would like take my siblings to the library and i would get books on record because you used to get mm-hmm. those like, oh, yeah. bbc uh, uh uh radio plays i would get those and listen to them my dad would read to us every night he would read us you know dickens or c.s lewis or graham or all kinds of stuff like that and and i just i loved like just the way that sentences lay in the ear i loved it so much and because i was the oldest and because i did a lot of babysitting i did a lot of just storytelling uh and so mm-hmm. you, know, you tell a kid a story and it's gone, you know, um, yeah. and uh, and all you have is the memory of it. So you would make up uh, stories for your babysitting awards? That's, all the time. And, 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 and uh, you never repeat the same story? Oh, never. Oh, great. Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. And um, uh, and so, so yeah, it, I mean, I used to also like, mem- I, I would like sneak downstairs when my parents would have guests and I would memorize their conversations <laughs> and then like, say them out loud i can't do any of that now but that wasn't really like you know the head injury i think that's just because i'm getting old uh and um but um but yeah i i do think that you know being able to write without pressure but i also used to do that as my revision tactic too um that um because (laughs) once upon a time i had this really cheap ancient computer and i was writing a novel and um uh and i I, i'm an idiot and like i didn't back anything up and the novel burst into flames oh like like that very exciting this like melted computer to the um uh, uh to the you know the tech 
place at the at the university, and this like lovely mustachioed Ukrainian man. Um, uh, I was just like, is it? He was he was so nice. He was so kind. And I was just like, is it possible to get anything off of this? Like, honestly, this like melted, like, just <laughs> is like, no. <laughs> the most magnificent mustache I have ever. <laughs> I remember it fondly and to this day. But I, you know, I, I was probably like 300 pages in to that novel. And I, I cried for a few days. And then I was just like, you know, I, um, uh, I, I, my, I inherited another laptop from my father-in-law. Um, and, um, and I, so I just started over and it was like actually really freeing, um, uh, just sort of like, you know, just like be starting from like knowing the characters and knowing like the text, mm. the texture of the novel and like the, and just like having that sort of wide open space. And so then I started to, my, my strategy for revision was I sort of like fondly called select all delete. Um, mm -hmm. uh, like I'd get to the book. Okay. I got it. I'd erase everything. <laughs> start over. Yeah. And then my husband asked me to please not do that anymore because it was giving him an ulcer. So I was like, but I, I do erase things a lot. And so he's like, just, just like make a file and call it worthless crap and put things in there. It'll feel like erasing. And you know, weirdly it does. So, um, uh, so I, I do that, but, um, uh, but I do think that there is something about memory. We don't, we don't really trust our memories very well. And, um, and I think, I think that, you know, being able to, you know, return to the, the memory space where that, that story lives, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and re-experiencing things in that way, I think actually is kind of a dynamic way to write. Um, I like doing that, but also, I mean, I'm very precious about things, you know, mm. um, about really anything. Um, and so, um, uh, I, I I really like writing longhand. I think neurologically it's really interesting um, uh, mm -hmm. because our brains are sort of like moving back and forth across the midline of the brain. We're we're stimulating both sides. Um, I I I'm much more. I, I'm able to make connections when I'm writing longhand that I can't do when I'm just typing. And I, and that isn't, and I do still sometimes, you know, compose, um, uh, just on the, uh, on the computer, especially if I need to write really fast. But when I'm sort of in that kind of contemplative space, um, uh, where I, I just, I, the nice thing about writing longhand is that we slow down. Mm -hmm. uh, we, um, uh, uh, we're, we're allowing the sort of right and left side of the brain to kind of talk to each other in a little bit of a more sort of like, um, uh, alive kind of a way. And, um, but there is something really incredibly freeing about just like writing a story, reading it out loud, letting the sentences be in the space. Um, feeling the, the sensation of speaking sentences and speaking the, the story, feeling it in your mouth, feeling it in your ear, feeling that resonance in your chest is really awesome. And so, um, uh, and also like the nice thing about recycling a story is that it means that it was only ever for me. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. It's this 
thing that I get to enjoy all on my own, this like moment of beauty um, and this moment of grace. And, and maybe there will be bits and pieces that like find their way into something else and maybe not. And all of that is okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, um, uh, uh, there's the art that we sell and there's also the art that we, that, that like lifts our own spirits up. I mean, I have that anyway. Like I, I call them my shadow novels, the sort of um, uh, the the novels that I that I finished longhand, and I just thought, you know what? I just I just want I I learned what I needed to learn from that. I got what I needed to get, and and now I'm I, and and the on always those shadow novels like. Like they, they lead me to, there's, there's actually this other question that I need to. So thank you. I thank it. I always thank it for its service. <laughs> uh, and because whatever. Um, so, so I'm a fantasy writer. Like we have like weird, woohoo, magical <laughs> thinking. Uh, and, um, and so, um, so yeah. The, um, uh, but those are just for me, you know? I don't yeah. know. Um, it's a, I, it's a, I, I'm super precious about stuff. It, 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 it's always. Um, it's not surprising, but it's it's surprising how many writers talk about fountain pens and nibs and mm. writing in longhand. From I mean, Elliot de Borard is talking on her Facebook. Joe Haldeman uh, and and the whole idea of writing something. And I believe that when Neil Stevenson was writing his trilogy of historical novels, the Baroque trilogy, he wrote it not quite with a quill pen, but with a fountain pen, so he could get the rhythm of what. 18th century yeah. prose felt like. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I can completely understand that. But the thing that comes across mostly from what you were just saying, you sound like a happy storyteller. <laughs> you sound like somebody who loves yeah, what you I do. I do. I do like it quite a bit. I mean, I like it because I haven't been writing for a while. So I think there's this sort of like gloss. <laughs> <in this culture. laughs> So it isn't like, you know, I'm like, you know, so, I mean, there's always that moment when you're sort of deep in a novel uh, and um, and you're like, I'm never going to be done. And also I've been sitting on my ass for like 18 hours and I haven't showered in weeks. <laughs> <sighs> and also... Like, I mean, that, that place of deep empathy, like that's real, you know? And, and um, uh, I mean, the thing about being a writer is that it does break our hearts, right? It breaks our hearts. Like I sobbed writing this book. I sobbed. Um, and because we have to feel everything. We have to feel everything. And that is hard. It's hard on our hearts, actually. So it is, um, I, I don't know what it must be like for, for, for writers who, um, uh, who don't have, you know, sort of strong families, strong relationships, mm -hmm. like, like a strong community to sort of like hold them up. Uh, because I, I like, I mean, my family holds me up, <laughs> you know, um, and um, uh, she's like paying me back for all the times I've held them up. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, but it is like, it's incredibly, like, it's hard, you know, and it's, it, it just is. So anyway, so I, I, I sound very happy because I haven't been writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
also, you have a new book out. We should come back to that. There's always a good well, yeah. thing. I do, yeah. and I'm very proud of it. And and I, you know, I had to give a a, a short interview uh, with a you know a local paper. Um, and you know, like he's just like, what What do you want people to know about this book? Like, you know, uh, why do you think people will like it? And I was like, um, I'm not sure if it's the kind of book you like. <laughs> <laughs> that people are unsettled by it. It, it. it pleases me to no end that on Goodreads, the word unsettling comes up again and again in like reviews of it. And I, I do, we live in unsettling times right now. Know? And um, and but mostly like I want my readers to feel something you know, uh, and uh, because I think that that matters. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, whatever. Maybe people will like it, but like, it's like the <laughs> Well, well, that might be since we've rudely kept you over the, our allotted time. The perfect way to sort of segue out of this for now. The crane husband is out in the world, as are when women were dragons, the ogress and the orphans, and other works. Maybe sort of, you know, fortune will you know, look upon us and we will see something else in the future. But for now, at the moment, thank you very much, Kelly Barnhill, for making time to talk to us. Wow. Jonathan and Gary, thank you so much for inviting me. It really was a great, great pleasure. It's thank been you a so great much. pleasure for us. And this is, until next time, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. Awesome.